Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the February Room, where we talk shop, tie flies, and share the fishing stories you never heard. I'm Lauren Carnot, your host, and this is the February Room. Presented by CD Fishing USA. Innovative construction equals exceptional performance. Visit cd-fishing.us and follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Welcome to the February Room. I'm sitting with Jay Dixon. Dixon is an outfitter with Dixon Adventures. Dixon Adventures, I love it. And thank you for sitting with me today. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, I came out in, uh, to Missoula in 92, I believe, pre-Montana boom. Um, I grew up, uh, I was born in Philly and then grew up in Columbus, Ohio and and my roots in fly fishing are in the Adirondacks in upstate New York. Kind of a really cool background for me. My family has had a camp in the Adirondacks since 1909, one of the original Adirondack camps. And uh, my uh, uncle Ed, my grand, my father's uncle, uh, or Poppy, was my fly fishing mentor. And, and we had a really cool thing back then where my family used to be with the, um, linked into the Rockefeller Park. And so in upstate New York there, um, near the St. Regis area, so it's up near Saranac Lake and Lake Placid. And they used to fly fish for years, uh, going all the way back for 80 or 100 years, you know. And so 
I remember my first trip that I was allowed to go on to the Rockefeller Park where we'd ask for permission to come fish in the 10,000 acre park and 10 miles of their own river and, and used to have Cornell developed splake trout and all this stuff. And so that was where I started fly fishing very young. So what brought you to Missoula? Well, when I graduated um, school outside of Philly there, uh, I actually wrote a letter to Fred Rockefeller and said, can I work in the Adirondacks? And so I spent two summers working in the Adirondacks with a little cabin with propane lights on that 10,000 acre park. But my first college I got accepted to was St. Lawrence University, which is in Canton, New York, all the way up by the St. Lawrence Seaway near Canada. Very cold place. And so I spent two years there and I was in the Adirondacks and I basically said to myself, the Adirondacks is kind of like the Montana of the East Coast. It's a, you know, you have the high peaks regions there and, you know, Lake Placid and it's a beautiful area that I'm still very fond of. And I said to myself, I've basically lived in some of the prettiest places and I'm going to drive out west. And I just drove out west and visited by myself in what I get made fun of with my friends was the little geo tracker ragtop and so I just drove around the country and did a wilderness course in the Wind River Range um, in the Shoshone section and I drove to Missoula and I was studying geology and environmental studies and Missoula had a great geology department and I got these there's these three rivers meeting here and um, I, I just put my transfer papers in and just came to the University of Montana. A year after I lived here is when I started guiding and when there I think the guide trips were $230 a day and we got paid $110 a day which was gold back then yeah. you know like if I could do a couple guide days here and there I had my rent paid and uh, and it was a different world there was about nine or ten of us that guided and some and, and I worked you know, for old John Perry Outfitters and then there's a lot of us now that are still around from those eras Lance Gleason and Joe Sowerby and um, Eric Edder, there's a whole crew of us that started guiding in the earlier mid 90s that are still doing it today around here. So, so you've seen a huge transition from <laughs> what it used to be. Yeah, I, I want to write about it sometimes. I mean, the evolution that I've seen, uh, I just turned 50 a couple weeks ago and I started guiding when I was 22. So I'm, you know, getting close to 30 years of doing this. And you're right. I mean, it makes me laugh to try and think about what it was like back then compared to now. We used to drive around and I still have my original guide truck after I got rid of my tracker. I actually did my first season in the tracker with a broken down trailer and and, and, and then I got this Ford F-150 which was a bench seat five speed. So if you were my customer with your with Justin, you know, you 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 know usually I want the wives to sit in the middle. You know, you get the you get the belt buckle we would throw the raft in the back of the truck there and, and you know, um, of course I did a lot of Rock Creek back then. I used to do what I call first ascents, but yeah, we didn't have shuttle people. So there was uh, some friends of mine that we'd just have to get shuttles with and a, a great friend of mine, uh, the, the originators of what's now Four Rivers uh, Shuttle Company, Ross and Maria Lang back then, he would sit in my raft on the back of my truck while I drove 25 miles up Rock Creek hitting branches and ducking from branches and then you know he would get back in my truck and bring it down the road and there wasn't shuttle people there was a lot of limited access superior access wasn't there st regis access we used to throw our rafts over train tracks and and anywhere you can get them into the bushes and, and put them in the river um, 
it wasn't too long. I think it was just right away when I started down, but we used to guide with little weights and pheasant tails with no beads. And I remember when the beads came in, it was just like this evolution, like, oh my gosh, what a, you know, what an amazing idea, you know? And, and then of course it was somewhere around the mid nineties when some guy from, I always, my story on the Chernobyl is a guy came up here from the Green River, which is where some people say it was originated from the Cicada Hatch. And I'm on the Blackfoot and he says, let me try this thing. And here, here's this black foam thing. When all of our flies were, you know, elk hair and feathers and you know all these things we were making and, and I started tying when I was about 12 years old so I was into making a lot of my own flies but the foam then comes around you know you find yourself going to um, Michael's or you know fabric stores and we started just making these things and the shops never had them in there and and so yeah the evolution's been pretty amazing you know from uh, watching the industry where we kind of knew all each other and I've been doing this a long time where I don't know a lot of people in the industry anymore or some of the young guys, like when you pull into most people around here know if you're in Albertsons at eight o'clock in the morning on a given summer day, there can be 20 or 30, you know, rigs getting ready to go out. In the 90s, there was like five of us that all knew each other and, and there weren't very many people doing it. You could float the Blackfoot during the salmon fly hatch sometimes without a single boat around. So yeah, obviously like pros and cons to it. The pro <laughs> is that the fishing has changed because you can have these great patterns. Yeah. It's got to be a little bit more difficult to have um, this community kind of lost a little bit. Yeah. With the fly fishing. Yeah. Guides. Yeah, there's definitely pros and cons. I mean, it's it's uh, I think it's really interesting to watch the industry grow, and, and it's a, such a great sport. You know, I have an attachment to it. Um, to to see the growth in, in a lot of us that have been doing it for a while, it's difficult sometimes because um it's nice to see i love seeing people out there fishing because it's such a zen sport and people are enjoying it and it's it's a it is the con it is unfortunate sometimes because you want to have your own space out there and it's kind of frustrating to try and go fishing and pull into an access and you just see a big crowd of people because we're all looking for our own serenity out there and stuff and so um it's hard hard to describe you know um over the years there's a lot of, I, you know, I float in a lower Missouri and there's a lot of cases where I don't float the Blackfoot much anymore because I'm not the kind of guy that likes to go pile in there with everybody. I'm trying to find, you know, different little places to go or even unorthodox um, conditions, high water conditions, areas where nobody's trying to tackle that high water when people are in different areas. So, um, and that's where the adventure part, you know, a lot of people that fish we know, and I do seem to have things happen on a daily or, you know, basis, you know, as far as things going on and crazy stories and all that kind of stuff, you know, so. Since guiding since 91, you have incredible stories, but you have one in particular that is kind of hair raising and the, the terrifying. One. Yeah, terrifying. <laughs> that one, was, I did a tell us something in Missoula on the Blackfoot theme, trying not to get too long-winded on it, because that one was, what, a 10-minute story or whatever. Yeah. You can look it up, whatever, Jay Dixon, tell us something, and it's kind of a, you know, the gist of it was it was, it was 2008, so I guess it was 12 years ago, in high water in early 20s of June with a 14-year-old and his dad and Nick and Graham, and we just, we went from Sunset Hill all the way to John's Rood, which is like a 19-mile float. 
and we hadn't caught much. It was like this 85 degree day. We watched people fumbling around. The currents and back eddies had all kinds of hydraulics. I think it was somewhere on just under 5,000. It was in the 4,000 CFS range. We, we just went down and I got below Whitaker Bridge and we were just starting to get in this caddis hatch at about 8.30 at night. And, you know, we had about, what is that, six miles from Whitaker Bridge and John's Road left in just two hours, right? And we only go, we go through Thibodeau Falls, rock and roll through there, and you go another run down, and you come to this 90-degree right-hand turn, which, like I said, the, when you're driving between Johns Root and Whitaker, there's all the concrete blocks there on the road because it's so steep, and it goes right off into that cliff. And it's on the left side of the river, and there's, like, this eddy that's, like, super dangerous to get into. You have to, like, your raft almost gets sucked underwater when you get in there, and then the river's real loud, and I heard this yelping up in the cliff and uh, I turned around and looked and about I don't know 50 or so feet up in this cliff in this scree field is this woman yelling for help nine o'clock at night you know like what the heck you know and so I had to pull the raft over and I ended up hiking to her and the classic line, you know, because she's slurring her words and her leg was all blown up, which was like a broken leg because she tried to intertube the river. Then I asked her if she was drunk and she's like, no, I'm three months pregnant. And I was trying to intertube the river and, you know, yeah, crazy. So I ended up having to hike up there through the cliffs in my sandals. I had to find, because there's no cell range, I had to find somebody coming down the road which turned into this husband and wife and then the wife kind of took over and ran down to her which I told her not to but she did and and trying to make this long story a little bit shorter I ended up almost falling down the cliff to get back to my raft which kind of turned into this anger thing because I'm like you know thinking I'm gonna fall down you know while I'm trying to rescue this woman that's in her tube in the river and, and the uh, guy in the vehicle had to get search and rescue because we had to like belay her out of the cliff with a rope and I knew the only way to get her out of there was to try and get her in my boat and get her down to an ambulance around the corner. When search and rescue finally came and we finally got her down to the boat and Nick's son Graham got on my cooler and we put her in the raft and the search and rescue guy goes, you know, it's dark now and the river's raging. He's like, are you sure you can navigate this thing in the dark? And <laughs> Nick's been my customer for years, and he looked at the search and rescue, and he goes, we'd be fishing right now if it wasn't for this you know? And the search and rescue guy kind of laughed, and uh, we looked at each other. I says, yeah, I can get her down there. And so I took her down to the ambulance, and like the end of the story goes, the crazy part, you know, after risking my life and doing all this stuff is I um, remember being angry because I never even got thank you, never even knew who the person was. You know, some people think it was shock, but she was actually fairly coherent when I was bringing her down in the raft to the ambulance. You know, I'm never going to intertube the river again. I'm like, well, you can intertube the river, just not, you know, now, you know. <laughs> so be, be smart about it. I mean, you do, you hear, I mean, do you remember, what was it? Somebody jumped off the bridge and landed, landed on the guy's on legs. The guy's legs. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. You hear a lot of stuff. How do you keep the energy to keep going every season to yeah. keep guiding since 1991? Do you find it tiresome or do you ever get to the point where like, I need to start figuring out when I'm going to retire from this? Yeah, That's a really good question. I've had even some of my best friends ask me. Um, personally, for me, the energy is a demented 
you know, inner energy that I, I don't know how to describe. Um, I'm known to be going all over the place. So I can um, be up there waving at Jenny West on the upper Bitterroot and then the next day um, be on the lower Missouri and maybe even down by, you know, below St. Regis and all over the place. And sometimes I'm doing 30 or 35 days in a row, you know, and I, and, and it's, you don't take a break and you go and I do get exhausted, especially as I'm getting older, but something happens when I get, you know, on the oars and some of these long days that I do where I just have this, um, it's hard to describe. I just have this energy out there. Um, and I miss it right now in these times I've missed quite a few days out there. And then the retiring thing's kind of funny because everyone's like, man, what a you know career you have, or you got the best job. And it's like, well, you know, I've always made the correction to everyone that uses the word career to what we do because it's a lifestyle choice. You know, I don't have any retirement built up. I've, I've the one thing I've done with my wife and my, I've got uh, my wife and my two teenage boys you know, it's kind of a neat part of the story when I started guiding in the early 90s. I actually lived in a wall tent in a piece of property in the northern sapphires east of Florence and built our own home in a solar home up in the mountains there. So I kind of did all that on sweat equity, lived with paper face insulation for four or five years and shipboard and just kind of kept putting this house together while I was guiding. And so I did do that. And it was a lifestyle choice. At 50 now doing it, you know, we're, we're not exactly putting things in the bank. I jokingly say my dad, who's been a headmaster of schools for years and retired now, my brother works for NBC Sports and actually does the Carrie Underwood Sunday night football shoot. My sister works for the Baltimore Ravens, very successful. I'm the middle child and my dad is still asking me what I'm gonna do for a living and I'm 50 years old. And so um, my wife's a school teacher and we just kind of lived this Montana life. and. I don't know where I get the energy other than it's probably just the passion for fishing. I've tried to fish for everything that can swim wherever I live, whether, you know, I used to surf fish, I've caught sharks off the beach, stripers. And so I kind of turned my passion into fishing into this, you know, lifestyle choice, not career. And we keep doing it, you know. Is there a memory for you that really kind of sticks with you when you're kind of on the river, you're like, gosh, there's this one memory that kind of sticks in your head that really <laughs> resonates with you. Uh, yeah, I mean, some people are like, don't tell that story, you know. Don't tell that story, Jay. That's, that's... Oh, that, tell the story, Jay. Yeah, tell the story, yeah, Jay. right, right. Well, in our industry, kind of get out there and we take... I, I'm known and people know I'm a little crazy and... Uh, I like dangerous water and I've loved dangerous water. And so I, I kind of cut my teeth doing some super dangerous stuff when I was in my 20s. You know, there's an irrigation weir on the Bitterroot that's become pretty famous over the years because it's actually taken down quite a few professional guides over the years. And we call it the Supply Ditch Channel. It's a, between Woodside and Tucker and it actually became real controversial because the fishing game actually shut it down at one point. Because it got, I even worked with uh, the wardens on that because I was like, this thing's going to kill somebody pretty soon. The hydro, the bitterroot changes so much. The hydraulics just got so crazy in this thing that even, you know, you, you, you either, you had the portage or you're in a real dangerous, you know, irrigation where that they've now put, I think two years ago, they put $200,000 in there to try and make it safer. And so I've got Jim uh, from Spokane and his son. And I get in the drift boat, crystal clear water. And 
I go over the left side of that thing, and there used to be a big pile of granite rocks there, and my right oar grabbed that pile of rocks and shot out. And I'm in a 16-foot clacker craft, and the back toe is about maybe eight, nine, ten feet that's sucking back towards the weir, right? Normally you get enough speed and your boat just kind of goes through that back toe. Well, I lost that oar in that pile of rocks that used to be there. And now I'm in the back toe with one oar and the drift boat goes back into the, into the weir. The reason I say don't tell the story because we don't tell, scare people with our stuff, but this is the only, with all the dangerous water I've done, this is actually the only boating accident that, I, that I've had. Um, and I've had multiple, of course, rescues, but this is kind of a humble one because I'm like, okay, in this monstrous water and my customers in the boat, well, the boat turns sideways, right, in this hydraulic, and it starts rocking, and it goes towards the heavier part of the hydraulic, which is actually towards the east, where the, the irrigation pulls out. And my boat proceeds to rock and move all the way across the front of the thing, and um, Jim's front son, what do we do now, you know? And I'm, like, trying to think, and I'm like, at first when we were getting sucked back, and what do we do now? I says, we're, we're f And this boat started rocking so big that it, I was, it was about to just flip and capsize. So you get a 16 foot drift boat that's about to just roll in this thing that's killed a few, a couple people I think now. And uh, so I remember it rocking so much. I got two drink coolers, one on the left side, one on the right side of the drift boat. And it, it rocked so hard that the drink cooler just went poof, right into the hydraulic. So it's, you know, you're pushing up to 70, 60, 70 degrees on that boat. That's when I realized, okay, I need, we're going to, if this thing turns, so I got on the gunny of my boat and grabbed the rear casting brace that people stand in, and, I, and the customers are kind of freaking out, and I'm like yelling, I just, I said, just, you know, just sit in your seats, just sit, 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 and so every time the boat would rock up, I would pull back, rock up, pull back, you know, I used to windsurf, and I've been on water all my life and stuff, and so I had all this balance and stuff, and I was kind of pulling the boat back, and I was like, I got to fill this thing up with water. You know, the only way to get out of this hydraulic is to fill this 700-pound boat up with water and see if it, you know, and sure enough, you know, you're talking 04, right? So I had this fancy phone that was like a construction phone, and like I think the fancy phone back then was the BlackBerry that my client had. You know, these screen phones weren't even there. We, I got this construction phone because, you know, we break everything guidance. So we, we, I, I'm like rocking this thing. It fills up with water, and it like just kind of pushes out. But now you... Now you're sitting in the middle of the river with the water flowing through the drift boat and the boat has stalled on the gravel. And, and at that point, um, the boat's just sitting there in the middle of the river. And I jump out and I run down the river to the funnel of stuff. I got two rod tubes, I got my guide bag, I got like maybe a client's gear bag. And there's just stuff coming down the river and I'm like, boom, 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 boom. You know, grabbing all this stuff, throwing it on the shore. I come back up, the customers are sitting there, and we're like, now the boat's just sitting in the middle of the river with, you know, this huge drift boat. Just, but it never sank. It just kind of, you know, sat on the gravel. And so now we're sitting there. I'm pissed. I'm freaking out, right? I got this father and son, a filled up drift boat. I only lost my drink cooler, and of course that oar was gone. And we have our spare oars in the gunny. And I'm sitting there, we have no phones now because that got all wet. And I have 15 or 20 more miles or whatever because I was only in the first part of it. And I remember I was like, I got to call the shuttle guy to get the boat, the shuttle now to Tucker. Well, you know, I, I have waders kind of part filled with water. I'm like walking in the field to the east towards these trailer homes. 
And I remember, like, not too far was all of a sudden lightning bolts. You know how these things come around in June, these storms. The clients are down by the boat. What do you do now? Well, I took my big potato chip container that we had for lunch in the other cooler, and they're now bailing the boat one potato chip container at a time. And I'm walking through a field with this lightning storm coming, and I'm thinking, I just got to get up to this trailer home. And and, uh, there was this black llama in the field. And I'm just, like, swearing and... You know, like wondering how, you know, I'm going to get through this and like what what happens when everybody else finds about it. Pissed off, swearing. You know. Sure enough, this llama, like whatever llama, you know, I'm walking. Sure enough, this thing, you know, llamas are fairly protective creatures. And uh, if you had a camera, you know, there was a guide with half-filled waders and a lightning storm running from a llama in a field. And I flip over this fence and the things like, you know, like they spit, you know, like the things. And I'm, I'm like, what could effing possibly go wrong more, you know, like, and I'm out of breath, you know. And so then I go to this trailer and the doors open. There's these two older ladies watching TV at like, you know, one or something in this trailer. And I'm like, can I use your phone uh, to make a long story uh, a little shorter? I could use the phone. We went back, we actually didn't think we had the spare orb. We found it way up in my gunny. I was able to put it together and we rode to the access and uh, and I put my tail between my legs and called that the craziest, pretty much the craziest day on the water I think I've ever had. And and now to this day, every now and then, you know, my buddies, uh, the, some of the old Nick community will jab me with a llama comment that knows that story. You know, I could have kept all that to myself, but it was too unique to just not, you know, make fun of myself and go to the bar and tell people this story. I think it's good, though, to share these stories <laughs> that things aren't always perfect. But you did, you used your knowledge and you were able to get out of it. I mean, I don't think if you don't have a story of being in a guide yeah. since 1991, if you don't have a story that's like, I screwed up, yeah. then maybe you aren't taking those chances and those steps to try and, you know, push the boundary. Right. Do you feel that now, um, as the evolution of your fishing story continues, <laughs> would you ever go on, you still want to go on these fast? Oh, yeah. Rapid, you still want to yeah. do it? I have a lot of confidence and I have to have the right customers sometimes, but there's even a, a few times, even on the West Fork, when it can get fairly dangerous up there. Uh, there's a lot of talk about it right now. There's a lot of woody debris up high, but I cut my teeth on that thing, you know, doing 20 to 30 days every June when I was in my 20s. When I look back on that, those are some pretty crazy days. And that's where I, I think I developed a lot of this confidence um, to be able to do that kind of water because I used to do it all the time. Are you taking new clients? If people want to reach out, how do they, if they want to go on a guided trip, how do they, um, how do they find you? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've got a, um, kind of an old website that I'm working on in these, uh, quarantine times that, uh, have outdated fishing reports and stuff, but, uh, yeah, I've got DixonAdventures.com, and, and uh, I do get found with my classes because I, I do a lot of instructional stuff, and when I'm not guiding, I try and do these I can do like individual, it's like getting a golf lesson for, you know, two or three hours. And I think I'm kind of unique that way. There's not a whole lot of businesses that do like, you know, uh, these two or three hour classes. But you can find me or Google me. There's some stuff out there. But uh, um, I think most of my customers are word of mouth. You know, you got to go fishing with Crazy Jay or this guy, you know, if 
I do these multi-river things that are kind of cool where people fly into Missoula and they leave Great Falls so I can do multiple rivers here. I can be on the upper Bitterroot or Bitterroot Blackfoot, lower, and okay, let's go over there and do the Missouri, and then they fly out of Great Falls. I think I'm one of the few people that does some of that. So I put, you know, I could be a, I could be taken out at Cascade or, you know, the middle of the canyon of the Missouri at 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night, and I have to be back here and ready to go at seven in the morning. I don't think it's a bad thing. Those guys go out there and work and they get the job done and go home and do it again, you know. It's nothing that I'm real critical of, but that's just, you know, that's not my Dixon Adventure style. I mean, if I'm going to keep doing this and keep my energy doing it, you know, I got to keep doing weird stuff. I can't just, I can't turn it into a, a routine. It's got to be different. Something that's in me about fishing it goes all the way back to the Adirondacks. I'm 50 now. I've been doing this for almost 30 years. I don't know, because I love it, but I don't know what else, you know. I certainly have my dad, people, you should, you got to teach, go teach, you know, do that, you know, like try and change your, I don't know if I can do that. I've been doing this too long, you know, like watching sunsets and eagles and, you know, wildlife and doing all the, you know, not knowing what every day is going to transpire on the river. The river's got an energy all on its own, you know, like, and it, and, and it, it feeds, you know, whether I'm exhausted or not, like it's, you know, you get into the magic hour and the sun's going down and nobody's around and you got all kinds of different, I can't, I don't know what else I do. I love it. You really encompass the whole idea of the adventures on the river. And <laughs> I hope that at one point we can get on the river yeah, together. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going to, I, I gotta show I'm, your advent husband. I'm adventurous. I can do it. Let's go on some High water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a while, but I mean, yeah. I was, I was Just, in Colorado. I did yeah, some yeah, high yeah. water rafting. Give me a rod. I can do it. Right down Durango area or somewhere now? In Colorado Springs. Yeah, there you go. Well, I appreciate you sitting with me yeah. today, Jay. Thank you so much. It's okay. been cool. Want to learn to tie an old school fly? Well, go to our website at CD Fishing USA. And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, Give us those five stars and subscribe so you never miss another episode. And remember to go fishing.